The language of God is silence. And the virtue of nature is patience. I've had that going on in my head recently. Just that little phrase. Something that came to mind in the last week. And I've just been thinking that. Because I think it's very true. And the language of God being silence. The, the purity and the perfection of that. The purity and the perfection of silence. Which is the audial form of emptiness. That perfect emptiness. And when you speak, you disrupt that. That's destruction of the empty spaces. That's your crime, as Black Sabbath put it. And because we have to commit that crime, because we have to speak, because we have to make noise at all, in some form, in some way, we have to commit that crime against silence, against emptiness. And because of that, because it's inevitable, that's part of our original sin, maybe our karma, those related ideas, we should be very intentional when we say things, and it, that's somewhere where I struggle. I feel that sometimes I disrupt that silence, even in my own little corner, unadvertised, not trying to reach anybody in particular, I feel that I sometimes make a misstep. Not because I don't believe in what I'm saying or because I feel that I'm wrong, but simply the act of speaking itself and sharing certain thoughts sometimes feels unnecessary. And I think it's good to feel that way. <clears throat> I think it's good to have that dilemma, but not censor yourself either. And not censor your thought process, because I think that's something that I do to myself sometimes, is I think, oh, why did I say that? Why did I record that? Why did I send that message? Why did I say that when I was talking to that person? And sometimes you, it's just your thinking as you speak. And sometimes that's where the purest thoughts come out. Sometimes that's where the best ideas come to be, when you don't even expect you, you don't even expect to say what you end up saying because it's not something that you had actually thought about before. There was no rehearsal. You're giving in to the great improv of life. And all thinking is a form of improv if you're actually thinking and not just going over somebody else's you know not not just reviewing somebody else's material. So, you know, thinking out loud, there's nothing wrong with that. And even if you say something you don't believe, or you say something you later decide is wrong, or you say something that could be misunderstood, that's okay. But there's a lot of people who don't think it's okay, and that's where we're at. I've wanted to avoid speaking lately, and part of that is because just on that spiritual level, the language of God is silence, and I truly believe that. And it's been a, a gloomy June so far. It's, it, the weather looks like it's going to get a little warmer here. But for June, even in Washington, it's been very gray and on and off rainy. And I've appreciated that. You know, June gloom is a term usually reserved for Los Angeles. Los Angeles tends to get kind of an overcast, gloomy, 
look in late May, early June, which is a really nice time to visit L.A. I've been there during that time of year, and it's I really enjoy L.A. during that gloom. But we've had a little bit of that here in Washington, a lot of it, actually, a lot of June, and I think it's been good. I think warm weather brings, you know, it warms up the blood, and I think Olympia in particular, things might have been even more heated over the last few weeks if the weather had been warmer. And so something about rain and overcast gloom, as they call it. I don't think it's gloom. I mean, I think we should call it June Bloom. June Bloom. Like Judy Bloom? No, not like Judy Bloom. Like that bootleg knockoff of Judy Bloom. June Bloom. B-L-O-O-M. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, if, if you have a rainy June, you're going to have a much greener a much more lush and luscious summer. So the more rain you get into the spring, and it's a time, too, when you can really appreciate rain and gloom because it's not terribly cold. I love winter rain, but it can really chill you. You know, you don't want to get super wet out and about, whereas if you get a nice, you know, if it's 65, 70 degrees out and you have some rain, that's a really nice rain to experience. And, you know, rain's loud. You hear it pounding outside. You hear it on the window pane. But uh, in some ways, I think of rain. This is going to be really poetic. So poetic. But I, I think of rain as it's almost like amplified silence. Because everything else becomes silent. The world becomes a lot quieter when it rains. Yet rain itself is very loud. So in some way, it's almost like amplified silence. Almost if you take you know a, a microphone signal that's not picking up any sound, and you just jack the levels up, you're going to get a lot of hiss. That's kind of what it's like to me. It's kind of what rain is like, a nice heavy rain. And snow is even better, because snow, it falls like rain, but it's totally silent. Totally silent. But enough of that poetic thinking. Now's not the time for poetry. It's the time for... It's the time to destroy each other. It's It's time to destroy each other. That's where we're at, though, and that's why another reason why I'm hesitant to speak right now. I don't feel victimized. I don't feel. I don't know. I I feel my equanimity is at stake, and I've been doing a lot of deep meditation in the morning. I've been doing a lot of good reading. I feel like I've been focused on the right things, but I've also been looking at Twitter, which I've never done. Maybe once in a blue moon, I'll look at a very specific person's Twitter page, and then I don't look at Twitter again for months. But I made an account, and I'm looking at stuff because I'm not seeing certain ideas expressed elsewhere. And not only am I not seeing them expressed elsewhere, I'm seeing them censored and suppressed elsewhere. And that's real. You know, there's no conspiracy in my brain. I'm observant. I've... Over the last few weeks, I've tried to really maintain that equanimity. And, it, you know, of course, it veers. When you're balancing on that kind of that fine point, you know, the slightest movement will cause you to lean one direction or another. And that happens to me, of course. That happens even when I try to maintain some kind of balance. But I really had it in my mind over the last few weeks that, okay, I'm going to be a peacemaker, I'm going to be neutral, 
And I'm finding it very difficult to feel that way now. And I have sympathy for everybody. I really truly have sympathy for everybody. Everybody who feels desperate, which is so many people, but I don't necessarily respect what people do when they are desperate. I might have sympathy for desperation, that feeling, but I don't have sympathy and I certainly don't support the actions of desperation, especially when the person expressing that desperation, the people expressing that desperation, are doing it on behalf of somebody else and they are attempting to shut down conversations and it's happening happening at a, a rapid pace on an institutional, commercial, and personal level. And even expressing some kind of equanimity or neutrality is seen as suspect. It's like John Cleese said uh, many years ago, decades ago now, in a, in a little funny clip he made. You know, he talks about extremists, and he talks about what do extremists on the left hate? And he gives this big list, and then he says, and moderates. And then he says, what do extremists on the right hate? And he gives this, this list of very similar things, because those sides, it's, it's kind of uh, it's horseshoe theory which I don't know if I agree with 100%, but horseshoe theory is the idea that at the extremes of a certain belief spectrum or a political spectrum, the two extremes are actually much closer together than they believe. So it kind of has the shape of a horseshoe, where at the end of the horseshoe, these supposedly separate ends are far closer together than the curve of the horseshoe. And there, there is a lot of truth to that. I don't know that it's a perfect, you know, I don't know that it's a perfect detailed analysis of what happens, but I think it is a good visual. It is a good illustration. And it plays into what I've said about people's seemingly inevitable, the seemingly inevitable urge to become religious even outside of spirituality, even in this supposedly secular world of thinking, and how, you know, the far left, they believe apocalyptic climate change is coming unless you repent. They believe in the original sin of racism. They believe in all sorts of invisible things, which I'm not saying don't influence us and aren't a part of things, but they nonetheless believe in these very intangible ideas that they think are of the utmost importance and must be talked about constantly. And you must continue to repent and confess and shame those who don't do the same. And you see that with fundamentalists on the far right. There's the belief in the revelation in that form of Christian apocalypse. Similarly, they believe in original sin for which you must, you must continually repent and confess. And they too go on witch hunts. So even just that idea, you can see where it's horseshoe theory almost perfectly. And uh, what we're seeing right now, though, is 
one end of the spectrum making a very bold move. And uh, I, I believe they saw an opportunity. And while there is, there are some valid ideas at the root of that, injustice, police brutality, the tarnished history that we have here when it comes to our treatment of certain people. But you can see where they saw a much wider opportunity. And by they, I mean the political, uh, the, the, the political revolutionaries. I don't mean an exact group of people. I, I certainly don't mean black people. I believe there are many black people who are rightfully very nervous about what is happening in their name. And I, I say that because I, I've seen them express this. And those people get called names. They get called Uncle Tom. Anybody who thinks critically gets called a name. And the calls for censorship, which have been a part of the, if you want to call it a discussion, for the last decade or you know, definitely in the last six, seven years, these calls for censorship, which have been very successful in many cases, have ramped up, and now we are banning art, people are being fired, people are being attacked, criticized, we are starting to see violence, I mean there's been violence going on the last few weeks, but we are seeing scary behavior being justified. The mayor of my city, Olympia, she's you know, what you would expect from a so-called moderate Democrat. I don't even know if that's accurate, but that's what people call her. Because again, you know, people hate moderates, even if they're on their own side. But this woman, Mayor Selby, who, like I said, I don't know anything about her. I don't have a particularly high opinion of her to begin with. But I don't have really any opinion of her. I, I think she's very... She's what you'd expect from the mayor of Olympia, which is somebody who's not particularly bold. She's just kind of there. But when someone's just kind of there, they are an easy target. And the protesters hate her here. And I'm not entirely sure why. You know, the police haven't been particularly brutal. You know, there are, case, there are controversial cases that come up every now and again here with regards to local police. But we haven't seen tear gas. You know, maybe there's, I, I don't even know. You know, but we haven't seen, we haven't seen police step into things quite to the level we've seen them in other cities. And uh, so I'm not entirely sure what the main criticisms of her are. I guess the criticism is that she doesn't think exactly like them, that she's not quite as extreme as them. But her house was spray-painted, that's what I was getting to, and they, even though she has a rainbow flag on her porch and a BLM sign on her house, her house was spray-painted, you know, someone clad in black spray-painted even more BLM slogans on her door and her house. They vandalized her house, and she was very upset, and she called it domestic terrorism. <laughs> and, but I was expecting to see cross-partisan sympathy for her. But what I've seen is people not only 
I, I was expecting to maybe indifference, but what I've seen is cruel encouragement of what happened and very mean-spirited attacks on her. And she obviously called it domestic terrorism. It was an emotional reaction. There was video footage of somebody on her front porch spray-painting her home. That's scary. And people are saying, oh, it's just spray paint. It's just spray paint. It ain't domestic terrorism. But people don't realize what a thin line that action is. What a thin line there is separating that action from that person breaking into her house, setting it on fire, attacking her, her and her family. Going to someone's house, a very you know mild, inconsequential mayor... Going to her house and getting on the porch and clad like a, you know, like a silly looking ninja and spray painting her house and how that is such a thin line between hurting her physically, going into her home. And I think that spray painting someone's house is bad enough. And I, as I've said many times on this show, you know, your home, no matter how you feel about private property and the inequality that exists in our culture and how that's reflected in someone's domestic life. No matter how many hairs you want to split or how detailed your analysis is of, you know, how how someone's private home plays into, you know, the greater issues of our society, no matter how many, like, hairs you want to split about that, the home is still the next largest extension of your physical body. And when someone shows up on your porch who isn't just a Mormon, I mean, you know how people feel about that. I mean, these same people who are cruelly, that's, that's what I see it as, cruel encouragement. These people who I, some of whom I know and who I thought of as pretty well-balanced people who I've seen become absolutely unhinged lately in what they're willing to support and advocate for. I'm seeing them give this cruel encouragement to what happened to the mayor's house. And yeah, it's not, it's not the end of the world, okay? I, I understand. I'm not making this... This isn't the hill that I'm dying on. The hill that I'm dying on isn't the hill that the mayor's house was built on, okay? But to get through this point... You know, the house is an extension of your body. It really, as far as our society goes, whether you agree or you don't agree, it's pretty much the next thing. It's like your soul is in your body and your body is in your house. And if someone breaks into your house, you don't know what they're going to do. Even if they just want your TV, that's not okay. But they might want you. They might want to do something horrible to you or your family. And that's why I believe in stand your ground laws to some extent. I don't know if there really even is a some extent. I believe that if somebody is breaking into your home, you don't know what their intention is. Oh, he's just trying to steal something. You know, you don't know that. Burglar, murderers lie. Look up uh, the BTK killer. Look up uh, the East Area Rapist, you know, Golden State Killer, as he's now called, who I, on early episodes, back when I was still reading about true crime and studying true crime, I used to talk about both of those guys. Those guys would break into a house, say, and they would say, oh, I'm just here for money, food, or to steal something. Because even though that's scary enough, they knew that that would pacify the... the the residents enough so that they could get what they actually want, which is sexual gratification and blood. But you never know what someone wants, and they could be that guy. You never know. So anybody who would defend a burglar 
is not somebody I agree with. But the point is, is somebody showing up on your porch, the same people I'm seeing who are giving this cruel encouragement of that, of somebody going to the mayor's house and defacing her home, not only is that such a thin line, but the same people I'm seeing who are encouraging it in a way are the same people who get really upset when like a Mormon or somebody comes to their door just giving a flyer for a church or to talk to them about Jesus. They get really offended and upset, and it's like, how dare they come to my door? And I, I'm not, this isn't a, a projection. I'm talking about actual people who get upset about that kind of you know, missionary work. And yet somebody not even knocking on the door to say, hey, I'm going to talk to you about BLM, although we're about a, two days away from that, I'm sure. But this isn't somebody just going around trying to have a peaceful conversation. They're defacing your home in a ski mask. And so there's this hypocrisy behind all of this. Where it's like, oh my God, two... Two little Mormon boys in uh, in their short sleeve, in their SpongeBob SquarePants outfits, came to my door. How dare they? Oh, but you know it's okay that you spray paint the mayor's house. And how dare she have an emotional reaction to that? The the video footage of this person defacing her home. But I'm just shocked at the people I know. I mean, this isn't me just looking at the worst possible person on the internet. I'm, I'm seeing people I know say things about that that I would never have expected from them. And I think that's what's scaring me most. And I don't feel that I'm paralyzed. I don't feel, I'm not shaking with fear. I think part of my practice, part of the, one of the reasons I've developed personal discipline, and even before all this stuff started happening, you know, I, I decided that June was going to be a month of even more intensive personal discipline in terms of physical health, in terms of mental health, in terms of spiritual practice. This was going to be a month of that for me. And I couldn't have planned it better, honestly. I, I'm so glad that that's the decision I made in May going into this month because I, I, I very much need this right now. And even then, I feel like I'm balancing on that very fine point, as we always are. But sometimes you become that much more aware of it. And you start to feel the tip of that needle even more. But, uh, you know, I think that's what's scaring me most is the, you know, I talked about I have sympathy for desperation, but I see this desperation and this desire to, like, I've only had two people approach me at all about any, any of this. I can feel a level of dissonance. I can see people raising an eyebrow or even not raising an eyebrow and just coming to judgment of me. I already know that's going on. And that's not me being a paranoid, self-victimizing freak about it. I just know that's going on. And it goes on anyway. You know, we do that to each other anyway, but right now in particular. But I've only had a couple people kind of try to lure me in a little bit. Come join my Facebook group. Oh, come to this protest with me. But what I'm seeing from people is this level of, they want some sort of, they want to save their own souls as quickly as possible. And because this is a religion, people are wanting to save your soul too. But they're not really sure why, and they don't really know what's going on with your soul, or your mind. In fact, they don't really know what's going on with you at all, and that's what's scary. 
Because when people don't know what's going on with you to begin with, you know, I'm not the most approachable person. I might record my thoughts all the freaking time, but I'm really not the most approachable person. And that's not because I'm in, you know, I, I'm purposely intimidating, but it's, you know, I just, people don't necessarily get me. And that's not me trying to sound unique. It's just sort of, people have expressed this to me many times. As a kid in college said, I, I made this friend in my freshman year of college, this kind of like indie rock kid, really nice guy, like theater kid. And uh, like I used to sit with him and I guess it was his girlfriend you know, in class, and it definitely had this feeling of like, oh yeah, we're we're in college now, so we're making new friends, and and I, I really liked this kid. He was a nice kid, but I just I knew we couldn't really be best buddies. But I remember one time, I just said something very dry in response to something he said. It was just being funny. It wasn't like mean or anything like that. But I remember he just stopped, and he looked at me. He's like, "You're a, you're a really tough nut to crack." <laughs> and it was, it was just so funny to me and I, I mean I don't mean to get too self-indulgent here like people think I'm unapproachable I just enough people have communicated that to me and it seems like the more that I open myself up it seems like it even just becomes more confusing for people so I don't really try but in a situation like this where people are declaring their allegiances and if you don't declare yourself in the right way, and this goes well beyond, I mean, you know, people are sucked into social media, especially in connection to the current situation. And part of that is quarantine reinforced that. You know, people who are trying to kind of separate themselves from the social media collective consciousness, quarantine basically just snapped that rubber band and they just fell right in. Because suddenly, oh, the only way, this thing that I, let's all put our cell phones in the middle of the table while we eat so we don't check them. You know, that kind of mindset, that that was just the rubber band that people were tugging on just snapped. And with quarantine, people were just like, my only connection to people is through this. And so that plays into what's going on right now. And I have some thoughts about quarantine. Let's not forget we're still under quarantine. Let's not forget that, um, but, and I'm, I'm planning on sticking through this. I'm planning, I'm, you know, mental and physical quarantine indefinitely for me. I don't care, you know, I'm not a rule guy in the sense, I like order, I've expressed that I like order, but I'm not a guy who loves, like if the government tells me to do something, I have to decide that that's something I, I agree with. You know, I don't like to put myself, I don't like to take unnecessary risks, but it's like if the government has a rule or something, you know, I have to decide. But when they decided that we were all going to be quarantined, I said, sure, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, I decided that it was totally fine. And I kind of, I, I appreciated quarantine and I, I still do. And I'm planning on sticking through. I don't care what phase we're in. You know, there are things that I'm going to have to do to get by in this world. But in terms of, the quarantine mindset, I'm keeping that going because it turns out that the physical virus, the coronavi, coronaviland, turns out that that was just part of what was going on. That was just preparation for the mental virus, the mental affliction that was to come. And that's what we're experiencing now. 
And because so much is in our mind, of course, that has overshadowed the, the physical affliction that is still around us. We're not New Zealand. It's not gone. But, of course, that's overshadowed by what goes on in our brain, because our brain does do that. What's going on in our mind always overshadows the physical, which is why a guy can be a bodybuilder and look in the mirror and say, geez, I'm skinny, or geez, I'm fat. I'm fat. You know, it's, it's why people have body dysmorphia, because the mind overpowers even somebody who goes to the gym every day. I mean, even myself, I don't think I have body dysmorphia. I grew up fat, but I, I don't think I have a body dysmorphia. I feel like I see myself as I am. But even then, I look in the mirror and I think, oh, you know, uh, your arms are really scrawny. Or, oh, you, you got a gut. And it's not self-hatred. It's just kind of, I'm just like, oh, interesting. Interesting. I thought that all the work I do would make me look different. But you can see where the mind kind of overpowers that. And... You know, body dysmorphia isn't something that we experience just in the context of, like, our, you know, how attractive we think we are to other people. It's something we also experience internally. And I, I don't, <laughs> this is the first time I've ever had that thought, so I'd have to think about it before I really go into it. But, but I do feel like in some weird way, the same, the same process that happens where our mind, our perception of things in our mind overshadows our physical reality and really calls into question how, how real our physical reality is if our mind can overpower it. And that plays into, you know, Buddhist thinking you know, that really so much of what we see is an illusion or is is some variation of what we experience in dreams. You know, if our mind can do that just looking in the mirror, you know, what else can it do? And I think that's what that's going on at the moment where our mind is completely overshadowed the Coroni Violand. It's cast a shadow over the whole violand. That's gonna be add that to the dictionary. What is a violand? It's a virus island. Virus island. That's good. But let's just get in, in while I'm thinking of it and before I forget, I want to get more into the quarantine thing cuz I, you know, the point I made just a minute ago is that it really anybody who was trying to, you know, play that game with themselves or it's like I'm going to have discipline when I look at the phone. I'm I'm only going to look. Yeah, I hate that voice, but I love it. Um but uh Somebody who is trying to play some kind of game with themselves where they have, like, phone discipline, or it's like, I'm only going to check every 10 minutes. Uh, You know, somebody who is trying to do that rather than just kind of learning that you can look at your phone when you want as long as you don't get crazy about it. That basically ruined that, where people are just now, it's just, it. they're they're integrated even farther into it. You know, they, they, it's like... uh, it's resist not evil, but it's also there's also another saying I'm trying to think of. Um, not resistance is futile, futile, feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L. Resistance is feudalism. It's kind of true. Resistance is feudalism, and we might be looking at that. We might be looking at a new feudalism. I've heard someone say that. It's not my thought. We might be looking at a new form of feudalism. We might be seeing the return of the dark ages. So if the dark ages are coming back. Be a source of light in the dark ages, but um, I don't. I don't remember the saying I was thinking of. Oh, oh, I, th- I think it was just "Thou doth protest too much." 
sometimes when it's like you make a bigger deal out of trying to avoid your phone, you're that much more attached to it. It really is just resist not evil. And, but to get into like how quarantine played into all of this, you know, quarantine was Groundhog Day. It was very repetitive for a lot of people, more repetitive than even normal. Even if somebody was living, even if all of these people who live very isolated lives where they just watch Netflix all the time and pretty much do the same thing day in and day out, there's a lot of people, most people don't revolutionize their lives on a regular basis. They fall into extreme habitual behavior and it's not extreme because it's just repetitive but it's you know they really just fall into habits and repetition but when you're told that you have to do that that's when people start thinking things are different that's that's once again the mind the power of the mind is that you can live this this life where you you order takeout and you you build up your netflix bod and you sit on your, your binge furniture, your couch, and you binge watch, and you binge eat, you can live that life, and it's just your life. It's, it's what you think you want to do, even though you're depressed and you feel alienated from yourself. But the second the government says, you got to do this, you got to stay home and do what you always do, then you start thinking it's somehow different. And that's what happened during all of this, is there's a lot of people who... They were told they have to do the same thing they always do, but with this added anxiety and fear and a finger pointing at them, telling them to do it. So the result is that that their mind sees it differently than it is, even though it's very similar to what they already do, (laughs) If 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 you can work your way through that sentence. But... So that happened, and it became this Groundhog Day, and I, I've heard people say, oh, you know, like the month of April, I, don't, I wouldn't be able to tell you a single thing that happened in the month of April. Uh, I know I read the Bhagavad Gita, and I had a COVID test, and my, lung, my lungs still haven't recovered. Even though my test came back negative, I, I did the drive-through. I was listening to Manila Road and reading the Bhagavad Gita while waiting in the drive-through line to get tested for COVID. And uh, so I remember that very vividly. But other than that, April's kind of a blur, too. And my lungs still haven't recovered. I don't know. I mean, I just found out two days ago that there was a natural gas leak in my house for I don't know how long. They had to shut off the fireplace, and I have to find a, a, a place to repair it. But it turns out the local places don't repair that exact brand. So that's great. Um, I don't know how long I was living in this house. Like, I for the past couple of weeks, I'd gotten glimpses of natural gas. And when I told the the emergency line, they were like, why didn't you call us sooner? And I was like, I, I second-guessed myself. I would only get glimpses of the smell, and then it would go away. And I would go outside and come back in, and I wouldn't smell it. So I just, you know, once again, the power of the mind. You can think you're smelling things that you're not smelling. But it turns out I was smelling something, and I was just operating, you know, sitting in front of a nat- natural gas leak. I think it was very small and slight. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully shutting the fireplace off for now is the, the, the only issue, the gas fireplace. Um, but anyway, why am I talking about that? Uh, I have no idea. Oh, just, oh, just that, you know, who knows if that could be the source. Maybe that's why one of my lungs, both my lungs aren't able to breathe at full capacity 
and I do need to go to the doctor, but who wants to go to the doctor right now? I'm not scared of nothing. Um, I'm not anxious. It's just electricity shooting through my body. Um, but anyway, so it's just gets so difficult. It gets so difficult to think a thought sometimes. Anyway, so quarantine, you know, we were experiencing this Groundhog Day and people were, a lot of people are saying they don't even know what happened in it the month of April. And that's one of the byproducts of repetition is that, you know, days become less distinct. Time kind of flows into time and you no longer really differentiate between days and hours and even weeks or months for that matter. But people were immersed in their phone and they were anxious and fearful for sure. And I know a lot of people did decide to start focusing on personal discipline, some of them temporarily. But some people did decide to use the time to their advantage. And that's, you know, using the example of Groundhog Day, that's what Groundhog Day is about. You know, there are people who make comparisons to reincarnation. They say it's about reincarnation for obvious reasons. He's reincarnated every day. He's, he has to basically live with his karma and undo his negative karma, gain merit in order to achieve liberation. Uh, but it's also just, you know, that's that's another, who knows about that? I've been, you know, I've, I've said on the show before that I try not to think about karma too much, at least not directly, but I have started to think about it a lot more. Uh, but that said, you know, I don't really know. I think it's a very interesting and... You know, there's something to it, in my opinion, especially because it does kind of relate to ideas like original sin. Different belief systems do kind of find the same territory in their own way. And when that happens, it to me, it gives each idea that is similar to that some more credence. The more people in different places that come to similar conclusions, or if not conclusions, who believe in a similar process, to me, that gives all of those ideas credence. Uh, but I don't actually know how it plays out. I don't know how karma and reincarnation and the liberation of the soul, you know, I don't know how Buddha, Buddhahood actually plays out at the end of the day. And by the end of the day, I mean the end of your life. I don't know. But to me, Groundhog Day is just about developing a personal discipline. And when he realizes that he's repeating the same day over and over again, what does he decide to do? He lashes out. He's mean to people who he doesn't like. He overindulges in the pleasures available to him. He, he learns lies so that he can manipulate women into sleeping with him. But the girl that he's after, she never buys into it. No matter how hard he tries, he never quite gets it right with her. But then he starts to learn that there are certain behaviors he can do. There, there's, he can just be decent. And if he's at the right place at the right time, he can help people. And so he develops this discipline where he has to start each day and he, he learns that if he gets to a certain place at a certain time and then gets to the next place at the right time, you know, it's, it's basically he learns that there's a certain pattern to this day. And if he follows that pattern, he feels better and it seems to unlock something. And that's what you learn with your own personal discipline, where you learn that there is a pattern and it doesn't have to be one thing or another. Your personal discipline doesn't have to be working out. 
Although taking care of your body, I think, is an important part of any personal discipline. But there's not one way to do that. It could just be eating right. You know, exercising. It could be going for walks. You don't have to run. I haven't gone running in four months. It's crazy. Longest Since I started running years ago, four years ago, it's, this is the longest I've gone. But my, like, my lung is messed up. I don't know what to do. And I don't want to go to the doctor yet. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so Bill Murray in that movie, he realizes that, you know, and he's a bad guy too. Not, a, not the worst guy in the world, but he's an asshole. And he, he just learns that, you know, if he starts doing good, being in the right place at the right time, and both of those require personal discipline, especially if you're coming from behind. And if you're an asshole, if you're a certified asshole, a CA, then you're definitely coming from behind when it comes to personal discipline. And he learns that, oh, if I develop and follow this personal discipline, you know, it's going to get me somewhere. And it seems to get other people somewhere, too. So that is very much about developing a personal discipline. And a lot of people were experiencing Groundhog Day in their own way. And some of them, I think, did stick to a personal discipline. And I'm sure if they've been able to stick with that, if they started that in March and they're still doing it, well, it's probably ingrained in their life and they probably feel a lot better. They're probably not a burden on the people in their life right now. I don't know. But I think a lot of people, even if they wanted to develop a personal discipline, skipped out on it. There's a lot of people I know who overindulged. I heard that alcohol sales were actually even higher than they normally are. I know weed sales were higher for a while. And weed I have, you know, mixed feelings about. Alcohol, though, you know, I know what it is. And, you know, if you're drinking even more alcohol than you normally would during Groundhog Day, your day-in, day-out Groundhog Day, uh, you know... I don't need to say anything. I don't even need to say anything. So people are disconnected. They, if they did develop a personal discipline, they may very well have let it slip. Because it might have been something they felt forced into. In the same way that like, you can grow up and you can play sports and you can stay in shape that way. I mean, I didn't. I managed to be fat while playing sports growing up. So it doesn't really, it, it doesn't necessarily get you in shape. But uh, you know, there's a lot of people that they grow up and they, are, they play sports. Or I've even known this, uh, somebody who's been in the military. Uh, you know, sometimes they'll get out and then they'll gain a lot of weight afterward. And it's because even though they, were, they had this really tight discipline, it was forced on them. And when something is forced on you, you don't necessarily have a desire to maintain it when somebody isn't telling you to do it anymore. So you, you see that where somebody who plays sports growing up or somebody who's been in the military might get out and gain a lot of weight. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'd like to get away from this personal discipline idea. I just want to say, though, that, gr- that the Groundhog Day of quarantine, the endless Sunday of quarantine was and still is an opportunity to develop a personal discipline, and not just a physical one, but also something spiritual or mental. To take in things that add to your life in some way, or help you achieve some sort of equanimity, if nothing else, some sort of peace with the, just the greater existence that you are a part of. And that's what Bill Murray does. He achieves a peace with the greater existence that he is a part of. 
And in his case, that greater existence is experiencing the same day in the same small town with the same people over and over again. But he realizes even within that limitation, there are possibilities. And some of those possibilities have a more desirable outcome for everybody than other possibilities. But so, you know, people got, they were in this situation where they got even more integrated in with the social media collective consciousness. They probably, they were probably suffering from financial anxiety, from anxiety about their health. You know, I was talking about how, you know, I got sick and I have this lung, ongoing lung problem. And I hate talking about it, even though I keep mentioning it in this episode, but I hate talking about it because everybody who got the sniffles in the last three months is convinced they had it. And I think there's something mental to that. And I don't mean mental like the way teenage girls say, that's mental. I don't mean it that way. I mean, there's just something in your head that I think because you were affected by the coronavi, because all of us were affected by it in some way, whether it was financial, whether it was just the fact that we have to stay in our homes or think about it or hear about it, because it affected us in this indirect way. And it was, I mean, not to say that that's not, direct. I mean, being forced to stay home all the time is direct. But I mean, because because the virus may not have infected anybody you know, or it may not have infected you personally, I think there's almost this desire to think you were infected by it, because that sort of justifies everything else. If you think you had it, that's like, oh, well, that justifies everything else I had to do. Whereas if you think, oh, I, I didn't have the coronavirus, and, and nobody I knew had it, that's what makes people say, I don't need to wear a mask, or, or protest quarantine. So in some ways, it's a way of almost coming to terms with the impact that it's had on society by thinking that you had the disease itself, the infection, whatever, whatever the hell it is. Whatever the hell it is, the coronavirus. You, you want to believe that you went to coronavirus because that sort of justifies the impact that it had on your life and everybody else's lives. So I think that's somewhere, you know, not to get too psych 101, but I think that's somewhere in people's minds when they say, oh, you know, I had a cold in February. And I, got, I had it. You know, I think that's what's in people's minds somewhere. Is what, They almost want to think they had it, not so that people can feel sympathy for them, or to do that sick brag that people do. Hey, everybody, Hey everybody, I'm sick. You know, that thing that people do where they want to announce that they're sick, and I'm doing it in this episode. But I think it's a thing that people almost want to think they had it because it almost justifies the impact it has had. And the impact it's had goes beyond just that, the, your psychological need to be connected with this thing that has impacted you. It also plays into what's going on now, where people got way more attached to the importance of their social media accounts, which were even more important. I mean, well, they were they were important already. We know that that is a dimension that most of us are attached to in some way. It plays a role in our lives, no matter how much we want to downplay it, no matter how many phones we can stack like a Jenga tower in the middle of our dinner table so that we don't look at our phones... You know, no matter how many times you do shit like that, that itself, that's resist not evil. That's too much resistance to stack your phones like a Jenga tower 
in the middle of your dinner table so that you can pay attention to your friends. That's thinking too much about your phone. Just put it on silent and keep it in your pocket. You know? And and if you look at it, you look at it. But anyway, uh, the phone drawer. If you're coming into my house, you got to put your phone in the phone drawer. Um, I don't know that people actually have phone drawers. I invented that idea. But I wouldn't put it past people. Just to make sure you're here with me and present, you got to put your phone in the phone drawer. Um, but it's in the bathroom. <laughs> It, it, it's in it's in the it's in the toilet tank. You got to put your phone in the toilet tank if you're coming into my house because I want to make sure that I have your full attention. Um, but uh, here we go again. But so people got more attached to this thing that they were already attached to. It played an even larger role in their social connectivity than it already had, and it affected their personal discipline in connection with that device. And then this cause comes up, which, as I said, the roots of it are valid. You know, it's at, at no point am I, am I trying to say people shouldn't have the right to protest during quarantine. You know, I think it is questionable. And I, that's where I, I think there are some leaps in logic for sure. People who say that, oh, you can't go to a store... You can't go shopping at the mall, but you can go to a protest if you believe in it. I think that you're seeing some leaps in logic and you're seeing some major discrepancies in the way that certain news outlets are presenting those those ideas. And it's very morally rooted. And you can't really measure morality. And there is a lot of subjectivity to it, but we're not allowing subjectivity. We're not allowing nuance. I am. I'm not including me in that we. There's no, there's no me in that we. Because uh, I think it's, this discussion is full of nuance. If we're going to get moral, if we're going to get into virtue, we cannot afford to sacrifice nuance, but we are. People are. And other people see that. And I don't feel victimized, but I see censorship taking place. And I think that people got so used to, I think people got so detached from the real world during quarantine that they no longer value the nuances of the real world in the same way they did. And I have no way of proving that or demonstrating it, although I think what's going on right now is itself a demonstration of that. And I think we learn to value each other less in the same way that certain minority groups have been undervalued, which I agree with. Anybody who was enslaved, anybody who was forced into ghettos, we have a brutal history as a species. And as a species, we live with that original sin. But to put that original sin only on certain people is not acceptable to me. And I won't go along with that. And even saying that makes me tense up a little bit. 
Because I know I can't say that everywhere. Not that I feel the need to declare it, but I know that I can't even say that everywhere or anywhere. Even saying it here, I don't know who's going to listen to this. You know, I'm lucky if anybody listens to this anymore. Truly lucky. Um, but it's, it's still something that I'm very aware of. And even though I'm trying not to feel defensive or reflexive, I'm trying not to react. You can't help but feel that. You can't help but feel something. And one thing that I will not do is I will not give in to something that I intuitively, intellectually, and for that matter, spiritually, know is not right. And again, it's not that at the root there isn't something that I might be virtuous about it. But the way that it is playing out, the process does not justify whatever ends come from this. And I believe that the end is going to be far worse than anything most of us have seen in our American lives. And that's why I don't want to start feeling desperate. I don't want to feel reactive. That's why I want to... You know, again, it goes back to what I opened this episode with. The, you know, silence is the language of God and patience is the virtue of nature. I want to keep that in mind right now. Even when I feel pressure to do otherwise, and doing this episode is itself the manifestation of that pressure. But it's my little show in my little corner of the world that I've decided I no longer even want to advertise. Not that I advertised it much to begin with, but I, I don't even want to promote this at all. And uh, it's... I'm, I, I believe patience... Here's the thing about patience, and it relates to quarantine, it relates to everything in your life, but I feel it's especially relevant right now, is that patience speeds time up. And impatience slows time down. So when you are patient, it's not that you are more okay with the slow crawl of time. It's that you're actually changing your entire perception of time. Time becomes faster when you are patient, when you are truly patient. And that's because, and maybe that's not even the best way to put it, because I feel that true patience just kind of turns time into nothing. And it's something that I have experienced with meditation in particular, where when I first began medita meditating, it was a slow crawl. So many thoughts, so many, your mind races, and you realize that it's not that your mind is racing at a faster rate than normal, it's that you're stopping and acknowledging it. And by stopping and, and acknowledging what your mind is already doing, it seems, it's sort of like the, the, the way patience affects time. By stopping and sitting with your thoughts, you realize that your mind is just racing and there is so much momentum behind that. And your so-called life story is fueling that. Your desire to have this story, your life, your inner biography, your inner autobiography is just spinning. And it's producing all of these thoughts that you think are so important. And when you actually sit 
they come at you and you you see them come and go and it seems like there's a lot more going on but the reality is it's the first time you've sat with just your mind and watched how your mind works and with a meditation practice you develop the ability to control that and not with a heavy hand but you learn how to slow your thoughts down and actually escape the influx of thoughts altogether. Not that they don't still come in as you're meditating, you know, you'll have a thought, but it's surrounded by a lot more space and you can see its tail much more clearly. You can see the tail of that thought and where it came from in your being. And if you have multiple thoughts in a roll, a row, a roll, sort of a roll, a rolling thought, but if you, if you have multiple thoughts in a row, as you get deeper into meditation, you can see where they link together like a bunch of Wikipedia articles. And I've said this before, but you also start to realize how when you feel overloaded with thoughts, it really is like you've opened a hundred Wikipedia tabs of things that you want to read, and it, it becomes more difficult to focus on any single one, and they just keep coming. And meditation is a way of closing down all of those tabs that you've opened up in your browser. Your browser. Meditation is a form of that. And it's not to say that new tabs don't open up, but they become more deliberate. And you can read through them more clearly. And, uh, but uh, there is that, that racing mind... And meditation, just to get back to why I brought it up, don't threaten me with a conversation about meditation. The only, th- the only thing I like more than meditating is talking about meditating. Um, but meditation, of course, helps you develop patience. And it gives you a better understanding of the relativity of time. Because as I said, when I started meditating and I would have these racing thoughts, you, I'd look at the clock, first of all, which I don't do anymore. I don't check the clock. You know, yeah, if, you have, if you're on a schedule, you have to be mindful of how long you're meditating. If you have to go somewhere, or you have an appointment, or you have to, you know, if you have an obligation. But beyond that, like, I don't stop and, and look and be like, I wonder how long it's been. I wonder how long it's been. You know, I don't, I don't do that anymore. But when I started meditating, I would do that. And I would always want, it, it's like when you're at the job. It's like when you have a job and... You know, I think even like Chris Rock or somebody had a joke about this where he was talking about washing dishes and checking your watch and how time would just crawl by. And then he would be like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to check my watch for 20 minutes. And then he thinks 20 minutes goes by and he checks his watch and it's been five minutes. And that relates directly to the idea of patience and the way patience actually speeds time up, or at least makes it a non-issue. And impatience is the sensation of time crawling by. That's what Chris Rock was talking about, too. And, you know, everybody's had that experience. Everybody who's ever been on the clock at work has probably had that experience where you're just, it's mind-numbing work, and you, you just keep checking your, your clock, keep checking your watch, and, you know, your sense of time is all fucked up and slow and... Meditation, though, allows you to initially experience the horror, the full horror of crawling time. Because you're sitting there and you're, it's just you and your mind. 
and your mind is going so fast and it's doing what it normally does, but you it might be the first time that you're really becoming aware of what your mind is doing when it's overloaded and how quickly your thoughts are coming and going. And it's just a horror show. And uh, then as you develop your practice, as you know, I'm not going to tell you what you have to do because there are different practices, but you know, as it starts to do its magic, and it is magic, it's the simplest form of magic, really. Uh, except for just breathing air, which it is, you know, a lot of meditation is based around breath, you know, counting breaths, you know, just focusing on, you know, directing your breath for that matter. That inward wind, as certain practices would put it. Uh, but, you know, you focus on that and you start to think less and you start to get into a deeper state, whether it's a trance, whatever it is. As you get into that, time starts to go by a lot quicker. You'll sit there, and you'll feel like you've been sitting there for maybe 10 minutes, and then you'll get up, and you'll look at the clock, and it'll be have been 40 minutes. And sometimes it still crawls by. But as you get deeper into a meditative practice, a meditation practice, you realize that it really changes your entire relationship to time. And you can learn to make time go faster, and you can learn to slow time down in your daily life. And you, you just learn that ability. And you can make yourself impatient when you want. Because sometimes you want time to slow down. Sometimes it's great to have more time or to feel like you have more time. So it's not that that's worthless. It's just that when you're caught up in that, when you're impatient, when your daily life revolves around impatience and just sitting there with no input, with nothing to see, nothing to watch, nothing to read, nothing to distract you, that feels like torture, but when you learn to see that as something desirable or something that's at the very least helpful in every part of your life, you learn that, oh, I can actually use my impatience to slow time down in this weird way, and that way I can kind of enjoy it. There are days where I just think, I'm going to, I hope that this day just crawls by, and you don't always get what you want. Some days, the next thing you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. But it is something that you can learn how to control. You can control your own relationship to time. Not that you can control time. Not that you become the time master or the time mage. But you can learn how to control your own relationship to time. And maybe that's what I should close out here with, is learning to how to control your own relationship to the things around you. Because that's what you got to work with. You have yourself to work with. Your soul has your body. Your body has your house. You can control your relationship to those things. And you can express yourself. You can protest. You can make demands. But you should do that after you've come to terms with your own self. If you're going to make demands outside of yourself... Those should come after you've already met the demands that you have for yourself, after you've developed that personal discipline, after you've learned some self-control. And I think that's what's missing, and the, the weight of that is very heavy right now. I think that some people experienced Groundhog Day, which did a number on them psychologically, because it was a fearful Groundhog Day. And it's not over. 
want to remind people of that. The Coroni Violin Groundhog Day. I, I'm, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I am not crazy yet. I might say things like Coroni Violin Groundhog Day, but if you listen to this show, you know, you know how that phrase came about. <laughs> it's about the journey, not the destination. Coroni Violin Groundhog Day. We're not through that yet, and we might have more of it to come. It sure seems like we have more of it to come. But, you know, it's an opportunity to learn self-control and self-discipline. It's a, it's a chance to learn how to meet your own demands. And I'm not going to assume that there aren't people out there who have met their own demands, who are asking, making demands of others. I know those people exist. I don't think that, you know, the, the current social causes are rooted in nonsense. I don't. But I can see where there are people who have not developed self-control. People who have not, people who don't respect themselves. Because when you don't have self-control, I feel there is this, just this intuitive lack of self-respect inside of you and it makes you want to lash out it makes you resentful it makes you want to blame others for the respect you don't have for yourself and those people that's opportunism opportunism in one of its purest forms to me is when someone doesn't respect themselves and they want to blame somebody else for the lack of respect that they you know, that they have inside, that the respect that they haven't cultivated internally. And maybe there's trauma. Often there is. But often there's not. You know, and I, I, I speak from personal experience here with people that I know who may not have had perfect lives, but they have no excuse not to control themselves. But they'd rather point that finger outward. And that finger is becoming, you know, more and more violent. And that's what I'm worried about. Things are already violent. Things are already the most violent they've been in our lifetimes, really. You know, if you're under 50 years old, America right now is more violent than it has ever been in your lifetime. Not to say certain groups haven't been victimized during your lifetime. Not to say certain social, economic, racial groups haven't experienced more violence in their own communities or anywhere else, but right now, on the whole, our nation as a whole is experiencing more psychological violence, which I don't, I don't like that term, but that is a form, you know, if we're going to use that term at all, I think it would apply to hatred. The closest thing we have to psychological violence is verbalized outwardly moving hatred, hatred, hatred. And so there's a lot of hatred right now, and I refuse to participate in that. But I have started to give up my attempts to be neutral, and I don't like that. Because I feel that neutrality is, as John Cleese said about moderates, and I don't consider myself a moderate, I don't necessarily love that word, I consider myself independent, But I like, you know, I think that moderates are the people that I would more closely align myself with right now. 
But as John Cleese himself said in that old video clip, you know, everybody hates a moderate. And I think they feel the same way about independence. But I'm not going to let myself feel like a victim for that reason. Just because I'm viewed as suspect by anybody or everybody, I don't know who. I'd rather not think about it. But if I'm viewed as suspect, I'm not going to let that allow me to be victimized. But I, I am feeling my equanimity challenged. I am feeling my neutrality challenged. And that's what the Bhagavad Gita is about. I'm glad I read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, a couple months ago, a month and a half ago, because it's about this. It's about somebody, he's speaking to Krishna. Arjuna is speaking to Krishna about this war that is about to play out. And it's between, war, the warring factions are cousins of each other. And that's horseshoe theory too. You know, that's a perfect illustration of a perfect illustration. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way of just explaining horseshoe theory. The idea that at each end of the, the extreme ends of the spectrum who are supposedly fighting each other, who are fighting each other, but are supposedly completely different and at, at odds with each other, hence the fighting, they are actually much closer together than anybody else. And that's clear in the Bhagavad Gita, where the two warring factions are from the same bloodline, and they're cousins. They're led by cousins. And Arjuna is related to them, too. And he's just like, what do I even do? And Krishna is saying, you know, you know you're going to have to pick a side because you inevitably will get forced onto a side, and you may get forced onto the side that you don't actually want to be on. And so that's been on my mind in all of this. But I want to maintain my patience. I don't want to jump into anything. I want to stay aware. I want to maintain my own self-control that is precious to me. And I've worked hard for her as somebody who was out of control. As somebody who absolutely felt out of control of my own life, you know, four years ago, three years ago. Only three years ago, at this exact time, I felt out of control in my own life. And since then, I have done everything in my power to try to regain my self-control, and it has changed my world. And I say that with no pride. I don't gloat. Am I happy? Am I, am I proud of it, though? Yes, I am absolutely proud of the fact that I made a decision less than three years ago. And it wasn't just a, there wasn't just a single facet. It was a multifaceted decision. And I am proud of it. But I don't say that to rub that in anybody's faces. I don't want a trophy. I'm not looking to, you know, brag about it. I'm sim simply saying that I am proud of the fact that I decided to devote myself to self-control. And it changed my world. And that's why if I talk about that on here a lot, it's because I know the value of self-control. And I'm going to do everything in my power to maintain that. But do I feel like I'm... Do I feel like America is on the cusp of something horrible? Yeah. I think positive. I believe in positive ideation. But I, I'm also not naive 
I would say I'm innocent in some ways, but I'm not naive. And I don't turn my head away from reality. And I feel like we are potentially on the cusp of something horrible. But I know there are a lot of people who feel the way I do. And some of those people are being censored right now, or some of them are being demonized. Their independence is being seen as the enemy of everybody. Both the the left and the right extremes have a tendency to see independence as, oh, you're not with me, you're against me. But I'm going to be careful not to feel defensive unless somebody addresses me specifically. Because that will, in turn, help me maintain that self-control and that patience. And it will help me avoid those feelings of desperation that can cause you to jump into something. That can cause you to step outside of your role. Because if you've spent time learning who you are and what your role is in this world, you don't want to be forced outside of that role. But I am finding it harder and harder to maintain a pure state of equanimity or neutrality. And that's the challenge I'm going to have for this moment, because fortunately nothing is forcing my hand right now. And this sounds grandiose. But everybody seems to have taken this grandiose image of themselves into this battle that's going on. People think they're Star Wars revolutionaries. People think that they are these cowboy militiamen. You know, when our culture slowed down into the the nostalgia mill, you know, the internet really reinforced that culture was going to slow down its momentum and we were going to live in this world of nostalgia. Nostalgia? Nostalgia. I don't know. How hard should that G be? How hard should that G be in nostalgia? But, uh, you know, when our culture slowed down and we just we started operating in this nostalgia mill where dads wear Super Mario Pixel t-shirts and every 40-year-old has like a, a Star Wars bumper sticker where we just watch old things on YouTube all the time, which, you know, I'm guilty of that as anybody. As anybody. I do a show that only plays music from the 1950s and 60s. But when we ended up, when we decided that culture wasn't really going to move forward and we were just going to kind of have this patchwork of nostalgia, I think that also impacted our image of ourselves. And so these people who are LARPing as 1960s civil rights activists, not to say that the root cause, as I said, doesn't have basis in reality, but you can see what attracts people where they very much want to LARP and role-play on every side. There's an identity that I can take up. And especially if you're not entirely happy with the identity that you've ended up with, the one that's out of control, the one that doesn't entirely respect itself, then it's very easy to be like, oh, there's there's something I can be. And if I decide to be that, 
It can also allow me to take out all my frustration and all my anger, which I've had to sit with through quarantine, all of my fear, and now I can just throw it outward. I can project it outward. I can destroy things. I can walk around with a gun. I can hope for, you know, uh, army helicopters flying over the city. You know, you, you can only role play, you know, you can only LARP within a war zone for so long before you just do end up becoming, you know, I mean, before it actually just becomes a real war zone. And, and that's what we're looking at now. It sure seems like that's what we're seeing. And if it's a war zone between people who live in the same country, that is civil war. And people have had that in their minds for the last few years. It looks like we're coming close to a civil war. It's the same reason why, you know, when quarantine, when, when coronavirus hit and everybody was like, is this the apocalypse? Apocalypse much? There's a reason why I was like, don't say that. <laughs> and if you're going to say that, think about the, the flowers that are going to bloom after Ragnarok. Don't see this as the end of the world, because the more that you see this as the end of the world, the more likely it is to be the end of the world, and an ugly end of the world. Because the end of the world can be beautiful if you come to terms with it, just like your own death can be beautiful if you come to terms with it. That's why people become Buddhists. That's why people find some sort of intuitive spirituality, because it guides them through the whole process, life and death. And so if you're going to talk about the end of the world, think about that blooming flower and not that blackened crater. But people threw out this idea of civil war. They joked about it. And now here we are. And I'm not going to give it any of my energy. I'm not going to say this is going to be a civil war. I'm just going to say that I fear something horrible. And while I feel that my neutrality is in question, while I feel like Arjuna trying to decide which, which side to take, which of the cousins am I going to join? While I feel like that in some respect, I'm not eager to jump into the mix. But as Krishna teaches him, you might get pulled in anyway. You will inevitably get pulled in anyway. And so while I want to embrace the silence and maintain the patience. You know, I also know that I know that those qualities are going to help guide me if things do become urgent. And so you want to maintain the silence and the patience for as long as you can. And I hate to sound dramatic. I hate to sound melodramatic, but that just seems to be the tone, the tone of the times we just inevitably, you know, get sucked into it. And I do feel sucked in, but how do you suck yourself out? Can you suck yourself out? That seems to be what Arjuna is asking Krishna. How do I suck myself out of this? How do I not get sucked in at the very least? 
sucked in and sucked out. And, uh, you know, what does Krishna say? Find your own peace. Find your own equanimity and maintain that. And even though you will get sucked in, if you maintain your personal discipline and your equanimity, when you get sucked in, you can at least have some control and you can do so with some deliberation. And hopefully this just, it's a philosophical exercise. Hopefully nothing comes of this. Hopefully these words are just a hollow philosophical exercise and what I'm talking about doesn't come to be. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take my